It's Monday, May 22nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Russia has listed its list of sanctions. They're upset with American sanctions imposed largely on oligarchs. Why? Because Russia started a war. So Russia is sanctioning Americans. Why? Because some Americans objected to Russia starting a war. These Americans will not be able to do business with Russia, to travel to Russia. They're mostly elected officials, researchers, basically everyone at Rand and Brookings, but also Jack Smith, the Justice Department's special counsel investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. Why not? And Michael Byrd, not heard of Michael Leroy Byrd? He is, I'll just quote directly from the sanctions list, the police officer who killed Ashley Babbitt during the so-called assault on the Capitol. I mean, I think it was an assault on the Capitol. I would say that you could so call it an insurrection or a revolt or an uprising. It was certainly an assault on the Capitol. Here I am quibbling with the Russian sanctions list. Also on the list, heavy hitters, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, but not Fallon. I guess they're still holding out for the possibility that Putin will play categories on a segment on The Tonight Show. Also on the list, David E. Johnson. I'll read to you a little bit about David E. Johnson, because Duke University recently put out a press release lauding Johnson's, quote, vast scholarship, his time with Rand, mm -hmm. his post, This is What the Russians Do, about the use of brute force in Ukraine, his essay in August about landmines. The reason for the press release was to announce, quote, it is with deep sadness that I report the passing of Dr. Dave Johnson. Dave was a friend and mentor for many years. Yeah, so the Russians have sanctioned a dead man. I guess it's working. On the show today, Vladimir Zelensky, also sanctioned. He met with the Arab League. What lessons might be gleaned from the return of Bashar al-Assad to that organization's good graces? But first... Howard Fishman is a musician and a New Yorker contributor and author of the book To Anyone Who Ever Asks the Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. He joins us to talk about the legacy or lack thereof of singer Connie Converse, who after years of trying to make it in the music world as a sort of proto-Bob Dylan, occupying some of the same Greenwich Village haunts that he would make famous, she left Manhattan lived in Michigan for a time, and then drove away and was never heard from again. Howard Fishman unravels some of the mystery up next. In 1974, a 50-year-old woman named Connie Converse got in her Volkswagen Beetle and drove away from Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was never heard from again. So that's the classic trappings of a mystery or maybe a whodunit. But the Connie Converse story is not the typical mystery. Because in the 25 years before she left Michigan, Connie Converse arrived in Manhattan and began playing the type of music that people had never heard. In fact, 
It was so unusual that this unbelievably talented, unbelievably prescient talent did not actually find great success or really notoriety of any kind beyond a small circle of acolytes who will always remember where they were when they heard her and interacted with her, but could do nothing to push her to fame or even a sustained living. Howard Fishman, years later, heard a recording of Connie Converse and the writer, performer, and musician said to himself, I've never heard anything like this. I need to know the full story of this person. He realized there was no story, so he went and wrote the story. It is a mystery novel. It is uh, an artistic work, an artistic appreciation. It's an historic endeavor. It's a book called To Anyone Who Ever Asks the Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. Howard Fishman, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Were you more compelled by the mystery or the music? The music. Uh, but I was also compelled by the fact that there was no story behind the music other than very sketchy details. How much of a story do you need to understand, know, or appreciate music? You or people in general? Well, it was more that I was troubled by the fact that music this good could have existed completely under the radar of our culture. And it became a mission for me to try to understand why that disconnect happened and to try to correct it. What I actually meant by that question is, I suppose 400 years ago, man, humans would hear hymns. It would be in a church. We would understand, okay, this was maybe written by someone, but supposed to bring glory to God. Now, pop stars are marketed, but it's hard to hear songs or to hear music and not associate a story with it. It's almost impossible. And even if you hear a song for the first time and you don't know who the artist is, you immediately slot that song into a genre and that's telling a story. And there's less cognitive dissonance with that than there would be for this weird, ethereal, unknown, hard to place kind of music. And I take it from the book that some of that also was intriguing to you and drove you. For sure. I, I wanted to know who this person was that created this music. And uh, in order to do that, I had to knock on a lot of doors and make a lot of cold calls and a lot of cold emails because there was no documentary uh, uh, history of her at all available, no public information. See that bird sitting on my windowsill, well he's saying whippoorwill all the night through. See that brook running by my kitchen door Well, it couldn't talk no more If it was you Up that tree, that sort of a squirrel thing Sounds just like we did when we were quarreling The only information that was available at the time that I started research for this book was uh, were the liner notes for the one Connie Converse album, How Sad, How Lovely. Uh, and as I say, those... Those details were pretty sketchy. Describe her music or describe how you heard her music. And we should note that because of your training and just because of your taste, I think you may have understood it and appreciated it deep, more deeply and different than the lay listener. But if you can explain what struck your ear upon first hearing her that drove you through this process. Well, I had 
at that point been making music myself outside of the margins of mainstream music for a while. And what I related to was here was somebody that was doing this much earlier and much better than, than I had. Uh, and it was like she was, it was almost as though she was the best possible example of what I had been trying to do in my own music career for many years. And I thought, well, look what happened to her. What does that mean for me? The screenwriter for Taxi Driver once said something like, I, I needed to write that character so that I didn't become him myself. And that was sort of the feeling I had about Connie Converse. Like I needed to tell her story so that it didn't happen to me. So describe the music, describe her music. Why did you hear essentially what you were trying to do in what she was doing? I mean, what I heard was some was music that sounded like it could be made today, except what I was being told was this is music that was made in the 1950s. And to my knowledge, and I'm, you know, I, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I would say that I'm, I've spent most of my life pretty deeply uh, enmeshed with American music of the 20th century. And to my knowledge, there was nothing that was being written, anything like what Connie Converse was doing in the 50s. So it bothered me that this music existed and that it never got any recognition and also that it seemed to represent a, a, something of a missing link in American music history. Like, you can't really say it's a missing link because the link never happened. But had she gotten the attention that she deserved at the time, I think that the history of popular music might have gone in a very different direction, if that's not a crazy thing to say. No, I totally understand what you're saying. It's like as if an archaeologist uncovered a species and this species provided, oh, this is it. This, th there is this concept of the missing link, but this, we don't really understand how uh, hominids made the jump that they did to Homo sapiens from their ancestors. And then we find this fossil that has elements of each. We're like, oh, we finally understood it. But it turns out that fossil had no descendants. So it seems to exist right in the niche that explains things and yet was entirely ignored and maybe even didn't have any um, impact beyond the ephemeral in the lifetime, uh, whether it's the fossil of my analogy or Connie Converse of real life. So I think it's important, and I was educated by your book, for listeners to realize, I would, when describing who this, who Connie Converse was in this book I was, I've been toting around for a few days, I would say she's like a proto Bob Dylan, but I know that's not really true because as your book taught me, Dylan started doing something that no one else had done. I always said to myself, oh, he was a folk musician. He came in the project and the tradition of folk music. But he 
was the first singer-songwriter, essentially. There was folk music, which if you tried to write something new, was looked down upon. And then there was Dylan, who was writing songs that seemed like it could be folk music, but it wasn't. They were his own songs. As Dylan was moving to New York, Connie Converse was leaving New York. Before Dylan, there was Connie Converse doing the same thing, innovating. Um, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize how innovative to write new songs that sounded and drew upon folk music was. That's true. And uh, she, it's true also that it's unclear whether th- there was there were any direct descendants from her um, at that time. But I know from talking to people that heard her back then that although she had no commercial recordings available, when she played for people in private gatherings, in living rooms, at house parties, etc., the effect that her music had on the consciousness of the people that heard them was incredible. Like, it burned itself into these people's consciousness in ways that makes me want... I mean, there's, there's no way to prove any of this, but I do wonder, did Connie Converse's music somehow get into the ether enough that maybe she did actually influence the music that came after her in an indirect way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because many other artists heard her and liked her and saw what was happening there. She had some acclaim, didn't redound to uh, her financial benefit, but she played on Walter Cronkite's very well-watched morning television show. So that says to us that there was some buzz or appreciation of her in her lifetime, right? That's right. And uh, she was friendly, or at least professionally friendly, with the composer Mark Lidstein. Um, Pete Seeger knew about her, and they had interactions. So I, it wasn't as though she was a complete shadow. But as I always say, it's almost like Connie Converse had a superpower that she didn't want, which was to be invisible. Uh, people really couldn't see her during her during her lifetime, not only in her years making music, but in all these other activities that she did that were tremendously innovative and yet, uh, what for whatever reason, couldn't get any traction. And sexism certainly played a role. Her presentation of her own femininity played a role. Her unwillingness or just uh, total uninterest in being a Doris Day type, that certainly played a role, right? For sure. Yeah. She, uh, the, the prompts that the music industry gave at that time was that women had to be virgins or vixens and Connie Converse was neither one. Well, she kind of slid in very coyly slid in under the radar as someone who uh, perhaps seems to have had virginity thrust upon her, but then writes these lyrics that are, and writes these songs like roving women that are really clever and hint at, you know, men who want to take her home. And she always seems to be going home with these men. And that does echo some of her, I mean, you write about the uh, romances that she had. She was not a vixen. She didn't present herself as a vixen, but she was also no virgin. And maybe that made people uncomfortable. It's possible. I mean, I think that her presentation in general seems to have made people uh, confused anyway, if not uncomfortable because she was not especially feminine in those traditional ways that were accepted back then. Yeah, and there was no cultural cachet around 
just different forms of feminine presentation or being rebellious or I don't know, maybe she was a lesbian or bisexual or, you know, there was some intimation of that in the book. The, the, the roles were much more uh, confining and defined. Isn't that true? I think that's true. Yes. And um, I also am, I try to be careful in the book not to speculate about her spe- her sexuality because Yes, it's true she had affairs with men. Yes, it's true she had a lot of gay friends, both male and female. Uh, yes, it's true that somebody remembered their mother saying that she was a lesbian. But, uh, you know, you can, there's no documentary evidence in her own writing in either her diaries or her letters that she had romantic uh, involvements with women. But then again most of the documentary evidence that you were given access to by her brother, Phil, um, was in, to some extent, wonderfully curated and a treasure trove, but there were large portions of it that he destroyed. Did you get to the bottom of his motivation for that? No. And again, it's something I can't speculate about um, as a writer. As a human, it it brings up a lot of questions for me. As somebody who has dedicated so many years of my life to his sister. Um, it bothers me um, that he destroyed a good chunk of what she left behind. But I, he never he never gave me an answer as to why he did that. Um, how satisfied are you by your findings ultimately? How much? And we I don't even know if you want to get into like what we give away or what you did find because you don't want to posit this as a tantalizing mystery to be solved. But how, that is my question. How at the end of this large project and the book is out and you do a one man show about Connie Converse, how much closer are you to being satisfied to answer the questions that dogged you at the beginning? Well, I think that a lot of Connie Converse's story the fact that there are so many questions about it that still remain, I think, is part of the story. And I, I say that without, hopefully, without sounding like that's a cop-out. But the erasure, the lack of attention that people paid to her, um, her failure to make herself known in the world, her intense secrecy and privacy, I think all of that are, all of that is part of the story. Oh, so in a way, what you didn't find was also being true to this character you were chronicling. I think that's true. Yeah. And I think that the reason that the book is written the way that it is, is to include the reader in, in that search, uh, to take them along and to sometimes show them, oh my God, can you believe that I found this thing? And, and share that moment with them. And then also sometimes say, here's the wall that I hit uh, and I have no idea what's there. And that's the honest truth. People have different interests, people have different tastes than you or I might. And, you know, judgment is never a good thing. But does it annoy you that her story shows up on, you know, crime pods or on websites as just this pure mystery where maybe for a sentence or two, they'll try to tell you that she was uh, the proto Bob Dylan or something like that. But it's mainly seen as uh, an unsolved mystery. Well, what I always say is, uh, 
ask not how she disappeared, ask how she lived. Because uh, unfortunately, I do think that the disappearance is something that is sensationalized when it comes to her story. And people, people become magnetized to that unsolved mystery. But in terms of what she did with her life, it's not the most interesting thing that happened to her. And that's saying a lot. Uh, so at the end of the book, you contemplate just how many other artists like this there must be forgotten to history. I want to ask you a variation on that very sensible rumination. What about now? With all the way, with all the avenues of dissemination of uh, budding artists, do you think this phenomenon is the same now um, or similar now to what it's been in the past, just these unbelievably talented people whose voice would just, had no means of being heard. I think that it's true that today it's easier to get, to bypass the the mainstream music industry and get, or, or art industry or theater industry or dance industry. You know, you can be a creative person today and get your work out there directly to people who, who can appreciate it through the internet, which Connie Converse didn't have at her time. But I do think that there is still a bias in our culture about people that don't fit into what we think of as the standard metrics of success. We still measure success by beauty and power and popularity and we still measure art by how much it sells. That uh, Great art is considered art that sells fantastically, fabulously. And it, bad art is art that doesn't sell fabulously. And that's a problem because art is expression. And so to place a dollar value on it um, is really hard for people who don't use art as necessarily a means to make a living, but as a way to express who they are in the world. The name of the book is To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. Howard Fishman is the author, investigator, excavator, and champion of Connie Converse. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you so much, Mike. I knew a man once very long ago. They say that he was born in but I don't believe it Buffalo was never sufficiently gilded and pearled And this man turned out to be The playboy of the western world Oh, he was elegant And now the spiel Update from in and around Bakhmut, specifically Bakhmut proper, not any areas that are Bakhmut adjacent, say Bakhmut Terrace or Bakhmut Gardens. Here's the news. The commander of Ukraine's ground forces says they're close to surrounding the eastern city of Bakhmut. Ukraine has disputed Russia's claims to have taken full control of the city. Yes, well, we know it was disputed. That's what all the fighting is about. The whole thing's a dispute. But insofar as you could trust the Wagner group, as far as you could throw them before the International Tribune in The Hague, it is true that the Russian military and Russian irregulars have planted their flag at City Hall. That was a while ago, but they seem to have cleared and controlled more parts of what you might call Bakhmut proper than they had previously. So what's occurring now? Well, according to Reuters headline three days ago, Russian forces in retreat near Bakhmut, 
Ukraine and Wagner say. And then a Reuters headline from one day ago, Russia says Ukrainian city of Bakhmut captured. And now an NBC headline from today, Ukraine moves to encircle Bakhmut after Russians claim victory. And Wagner says, by the way, that it's pulling out. So is this a victory for the Russians? Or is it the classic declare victory and retreat? It is certainly a war of words, but also a war of actual literal war. So we'll see who's right in a couple days or weeks, maybe. Not by the rhetoric and the social media postings, but by the actual bodies and tanks. And as much as I decry competing claims on social medias so there is no one truth, ah, is the tank method really better, I ask you? Meanwhile, over at the Arab League. Stepping off a plane in Jeddah, Bashar al-Assad was greeted with handshakes and smiles. Once a pariah among the Arab League, the 22-member countries are welcoming the Syrian president back. Earlier this month, the Arab world's top diplomats agreed to fully reinstate Syria's membership after a 12-year suspension. Yes, Bashir is back, baby. He never left, and that's the point. Zelensky met with the Arab League, including Bashir al-Assad, which tells you the one rule of war. Win it. If you're going to engage in war, the lesson is to win the war. When the rebels were attacking Syria and there were calls for Assad to step down and calls for Assad to cease power and calls for Assad not to prosecute his war against the rebels quite so vigorously, Assad saw another path. He was going to win the war. It wasn't easy, but he did it. And now he's in good stead with his fellow Arab leaders. And clearly that's the lesson. Vanquish your enemies and you're welcome back into the fold. Oh, the media won't like it. Here's the CBC's coverage. There he is, labeled by so many a monster. In a brutal civil war that's left nearly half a million dead, many millions displaced, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad now welcomed back to the Arab League with open arms and two kisses from Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But you're only a pariah so long as you're embattled. Win the war, you get two kisses. Now, Gaddafi, that guy lost the war, he lost his life. The Taliban outlasted the Americans, thereby winning the war, and now they're back in power. Call them outcasts, cast dispersions. It doesn't matter to them. The rule of war is to win it. And then after you've won it, usually quite brutally, you get to talk inclusively, as Assad did before his fellow Arab leaders. We need to treat the cracks that have emerged on the Arab scene during the past decade, for the Arab League should restore its role in healing wounds, not deepening them. Zelensky knows all this, by the way. He knows the rules. He knows how the game is played. And Putin knows this, too. If you go to war, you need to win it and eventually and ultimately you'll be fine. That is the lesson reinforced over and over again by international organizations, and more importantly, by history. It almost seems too basic to say, but then again, we took Bakhmut, we're now retreating, or they lost Bakhmut, but they now have it encircled. Those are much more complex things to say, but I don't know if they add truth or clarity as much as if you get in a war, win the war, that is clear. That's the lesson. Win the wars in which you fight. There's not much to argue elsewise.
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson has won the particular war associated with senior producers. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.